Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this show, we're going to dive into the Florida offense and talk about how Florida should run their offense in our minds, given the personnel that they have uh, on the basketball team next season. We will get into the strengths of some of these players, where Florida's gone wrong the last couple of years offensively. Again, if Florida does not change their offense midseason, that would be the first time in four years that they have gone into a season with an idea of how they want to play and stuck with that theme. I think that's really important to Florida success. So does Eric. Eric Fawcett's going to join me. As always, we'll dive into that. We'll answer all your listener questions, and then we'll close the show with a fun talk about the best jobs in the SEC and a little bit of draft talk as well. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, among other places. Uh, we are happy to be back. It's been a little while, everybody, and we also have Colin Castleton back, Eric. Yeah, that was good. That was one uh, one positive, I guess, about uh, taking a couple weeks off the po- off the podcast. Was you know the the longer we seem to wait, it usually it seems to uh, increase the amount of news that comes. So in in this case, yeah, it was Colin Castleton, and that was uh, definitely some good news to hear. No question. Yeah, no, um, you know, I think obviously uh, Florida's front court would have been quite the situation if Castleton had elected to stay in the draft. I think one question that you know, fans might have, uh, and one you may have some insights into just because of all your, your work on the NBA draft. I mean, what, how close was this decision? How, how deep look did Colin Castleton take at the NBA? And, you know, if you know, what's some of the feedback that, that he might've gotten back? Yeah. I mean, I was someone who said that I thought he might be gone and I was kind of alone on an Island saying that, yeah, I think, I think he might be gone. I feel like a lot of people thought it was a certainty he'd be back and you know what? Maybe it was, but if he's going to wait until the last couple of days to finally make his announcement, that seems a whole lot like a guy who is uh, waiting to see what calls come in. And uh, I did think it was interesting that one of the teams that, that I, I have heard had interest was uh, was the Milwaukee Bucks. There was a whole bunch of people that said, oh, he's going to announce on this day. Uh, that was the day that uh, the day before the Milwaukee Bucks played. Um, they ended up playing and it was, uh, you know, the next the next morning when he finally announced that he was uh, he was not uh uh, he was or he was going to come back to Florida. And I thought that was interesting when all their front office was uh, celebrating a playoff game there that uh, maybe he was still waiting for a call back on, on the last team to find out. So um, yeah, I, I mean, it was reported by a lot of people that he didn't sign an agent. He did sign an agent. There was people that were close to the team or in the team that I said that, um, you know, I said, Oh, he signed with an agent. And they said, no, he didn't. And I said, Oh, here, you know, here's a source. He did sign with an agent. And they said, Oh, really? And that was one of the things that I said, or not that I said, but maybe had me thinking that maybe the team wasn't entirely as in tune with, with what he um, was kind of going through as, as, as maybe they thought they were, but it it really seems like throughout the process, he, he really did think he was coming back, but uh, he did receive some really good feedback. Um, There, there was a couple of teams that I heard that were uh, uh, surprised that he wasn't invited to the NBA combine or the G league combine, which I thought was kind of funny because teams submit the, the way that players get invited to these combines is teams um, submit a list of the players they want to see at the combine and then they take the ones with the most interest and they invite them to the combine so I was kind of thinking like well if you thought he should have been at the combine I mean you you can make it happen um, but there's some teams that certainly thought he'd be there 
Um, there's definitely a few draft experts that that saw him maybe as a second round pick or just on the outside of a second round pick. So, you know, long story short, I, 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 I guess interest wasn't there enough for him. Um, I do think he gave it a really long look and I don't think he was always 100%. He was coming back to Florida. Like many people seem to think. And um, you know, in terms of feedback, I, I think that uh, Colin Castleton is just still someone who's trying to brand himself as a stretch big man, even though I think he's only shot seven or eight threes in his college career and none of them fell. So he went into these workouts and shot the ball really well. But I think a lot of these teams are like, you know, well, you did really well in our drills, but we kind of need to see it in live action. And I think teams definitely want to see him get bigger. There's, there's no question there. And um, I, I would say those are kind of the, the two things. It's like, Hey, if you're going to be a, uh, you know, a stretch big man, you've got to, you've got to really prove it in games and uh, you're going to have to get a lot, uh, a lot bigger because uh, when you see the centers in the NBA next to uh, what Colin Castleton is, yeah, he'd be, he'd be giving up a lot of size. Yeah. And I think with getting bigger, gets us back to Preston green. And we've seen some of the straw man stuff that Florida social media has pointed out, um, you know, probably Preston's, I don't even really think it's probably like Preston Green's strength is strength conditioning conditioning coach is the strength side of things. And there are wide ranging opinions, including on the, from the hosts of this podcast as to the strength of him on the uh, conditioning side of things. And, I don't think Colin was ever necessarily out of shape, right? Like it was always when he had trouble defensively, it was because he got bodied up and, you know, he was a guy that, that needs to get stronger because he is such a good rim protector. Yeah. His numbers uh, protecting the rim are really good. And it's, it's more than just his um, block shots number. That's obviously really good. Uh, He really just had good numbers deterring shots around the rim with his, with his length. And uh, I I do think again, in the NBA where you do see so much drop coverage, that's where you do need to have a little bit more bulk because I mean, if you're in the NBA and you're a center and you're playing drop coverage, uh, I mean, Colin Castleton would drop down to the nail or just below it into the paint and Bradley Beal would turn a corner, uh, lower his shoulder and try to cave in the chest of a player like Colin Castleton and potentially knock him into the third row. Like you just see these, these lighter bigs that are, would be Castleton if you went to the league next year. I mean, yeah, you just see these guards that uh, they get ahead of steam and, and they just go so strong into the chest of these dropping big men. Um, And and yeah, you've just got to have some more bulk there. So I, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of the situation where I really see, cause again, it's not like, you go to the NBA as a center and you're going to have to defend 20 post-ups a game like you would 10 years ago. That's not the case for Castleton, but, uh, but yeah, you see drop coverage that everyone's playing. You're going to see these talented big ball handling guards. Um, they come down Hill with a head of steam. Um, if they see a light big, they're just pushing them out of the way. And uh, that's where, that's where Colin Castleton need to improve. Yeah. And I think he'll have opportunities to do that. Uh, although I wonder a little bit how much necessarily, you can improve in that area collegiately, particularly given that Florida has now brought in CJ Felder, who is kind of that guy to stop those downhill drives that they haven't really had um, really since Kidvarius Hayes, who defended them largely with quickness and length uh, as opposed to just physicality, um, Eric. So slightly different, but certainly, you know, I think CJ Felder gives Florida somebody that's formidable in that respect. And maybe that makes life easier on Colin Castleton. Uh, I thought there were a lot of times last year where Florida would try to help Colin Castleton either by firing the post as Mike White uh, put it and not firing it particularly uh, fast or, uh, you know, 
letting Colin get away from the basket. But again, uh, Florida's pick and roll defense wasn't particularly good. And with Colin Castleton further away from the basket, it was even worse. So, you know, your thoughts on that and kind of roster fit for Colin Castleton, it seems like kind of a ridiculous question because he's your starting center. But I think the way him and Felder will play together and how you envision that. Uh, well, that's really interesting just because, again, the questions that kind of have started to get out there on, on Gator Twitter and on forums now that Colin <laughs> Castellan's back is what's going to be the starting lineup. And yeah. whenever anyone asks me that, I kind of have two answers. I have what I think it's it should be and what I think it's going to be. And, uh, of course, some of this, well, a lot of it has to do with um, what is Keontae Johnson, what his, what's his situation. But to me, if if Keontae Johnson is healthy, um, he's I think he's best at the three. We'll see what the team thinks. But – in, in any configuration, whether it's with Keontae Johnson or not, I, I think that Florida's best five is going to have CJ Felder at the four. However, there's really not anything that would make me suggest that that's how the coaching staff is, is going to see it. So, I, I, I mean, we'll see. But, I, yeah, I, I would love to see CJ Felder. Again, another guy who hasn't shot the ball particularly well in, in college, but he's got a nice-looking stroke and, and was able to get a lot of shots off and is still – well was a young player. Of course, now he'll be a junior, but I do wonder, you know, Colin Castle wants to prove himself as a shooter. CJ Felder wants to prove himself as a shooter. Um, both of those guys, both Colin Castle and CJ Felder have good size, but can both still move their feet well on the perimeter. Um, I, I would be really interested to see them playing together. I don't think they would get cooked defensively. Like that seems to be the the fear of uh, the coaching staff playing, you know, two bigs on the floor together. I, I think they're both mobile and, um, Matt, I would just really like to see Florida not get hammered on the defensive glass like they have throughout the last six years. So uh, that would certainly, I would have to think that, you know, especially if you have Keontae Johnson at the three, uh, but CJ Felder at the four and Colin Castleton at the five, uh, that would certainly be a much improved defensive rebounding lineup versus the ones that they have played the last few years. So uh, I, that, that's, so that's, that's kind of my thought is, yeah, I think that um, those two players could play together and I think it would work totally fine. But, uh, but again, I mean, so much reluctance to playing two bigs uh, the last couple of years, even when it was working well. So I just – I can't really uh, suggest I think it's going to happen until I see it. Yeah, and, I, you know, I would say this, that when I was doing my annual summertime catch-up with, with Ham, you know, he kind of mentioned that C.J. Felder was one of the best defenders in the ACC and that – uh, again, that he really brings a toughness to Florida. Uh, and he thought that was a great get for, for Mike White. So, um, you know, I do think that that kind of, it's not a Kavarius Hayes type defender. They're different types of players, but I do think he's a guy that, you know, Florida had trouble with big physical guards of which there are quite a few in the sec that would get downhill and get past a guy like Noah Locke. And then there really wasn't anything down there. And you kind of had to hope that, Colin Castleton was in a position where he could alter a shot or maybe Scotty Lewis had quote fired the post quickly enough to help. Um, I think Felder is going to be able to slow some of that down. And then again, it also gives Florida two front court pieces wherever Felder plays that were in the top 50 in the country in Kimpom and block percentage last year. So uh, some pretty stellar rim protection, even if Felder comes off the bench. Yeah, and I, I'm going to say this. While I also think that CJ Felder should start, like I like I mentioned, um, I also think he should be your set your backup center. 
Um, not that I think he, he's playing 40 minutes a game, but I think you should stagger those lineups where like, like if you yeah. say who's the second best center on the roster right now, to me, it's CJ Felder. And that's, you know, with all due respect to, to Jason Jatobo, who's, who's had some good minutes when he's been out there the last uh, or last year. Um, but to me, uh, CJ Felder, who's got great length, great strength, has proven himself as a rebounder, has proven himself as a shot blocker. Um, I, I think he's the second best option at center. So uh, we'll, we'll see exactly how those lineups play so maybe maybe i you know maybe we get our wish or i get my wish and, and cj felder starts at the four um but uh you know pretty quickly they they sub and they go keontae johnson does slide to the four and you know we don't have to get get into line of talk now as still still some time plenty of time for that but uh uh wh- wh- whatever it is uh maybe you stagger those minutes and cj felder is your center and i know some people would say oh you know six foot eight that's pretty small for a center it's like well he's got a long wingspan he's uh, he can really jump. He's really thick. He's wide. Uh, and again, you can look at his defensive rebounding rebounding numbers. You can look at his rim protection numbers. You can look at his block shots numbers. Just no, there, there's nothing to suggest that you're giving anything up um, by going to the quote unquote you know small center with at, at six foot eight CJ Felder, six foot seven, whatever he is. Um, I, I think he's totally capable. So. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to what you think, Neil. Would you rather see backup center minutes go to CJ Felder, or would you rather see Jatobo having not not knowing exactly what uh, what things will look like coming out of this offseason? Mute. Sorry, guys. <laughs> see, the, the podcast rust. I'm shaking it off. Um, you know, I, I'm with you. I think CJ Felder as the backup center makes some sense. I do think Jason Totobo is going to get minutes if he's in shape. I think that the staff really likes him. They like his offensive skill set. And I think if you go back and watch some Florida film, it's easy to understand why. He has great hands and his footwork is pretty good. Like there is a lot of offensive upside there. I'm not sure how good a defender he is in the modern game, right? Uh, And I'm not sure – to that point, I'm not particularly sure how great a defender he is in like the way that Florida likes to defend. Um, you know, assuming that it's still bring your bigs out and hedge ball screens real hard and uh, some of the stuff that they were doing a lot last year and really with Kerry Blackshear when they probably shouldn't have been. Like if they're going to defend like that, I don't know if that's great, but I do think Chitoba will play minutes. But I would I would agree with you. I would play C.J. Felder as the backup at the five. And remember last year I was – you know, kind of clamoring for, for Anthony DeRuji minutes as the backup five. And now CG Felder is like a more appropriate fit, I think, as that player. Yeah. And uh, you kind of mentioned it too. We'll see how they defend uh, screener roles. I mean, that's something that's, that's going to be one of the big questions going into next season, at least in my mind, when something doesn't work for two consecutive years, I want to see how they adjust to it. Um, so, uh, would you, would you like to see a change? I mean, again, and, and thinking about how, how Colin Castleton would like to be playing for his, his pro career, um, he, it'd be great for him to play drop. Obviously the team isn't going to change anything for the pro potential of, of, of one player, but again, it's just something that just makes, makes so much sense to me for the way that college basketball is played. I know people that have been watching the Milwaukee Bucks get torn apart in the, uh, the, the playoffs here um, by uh, with their drop defense. I know some people are going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit down on that style, but again, I mean, college basketball is so different than, uh, than the NBA game. And, and, and I just still would just, just looking at the way college basketball is played would just love so much for Florida to go to this, uh, this drop coverage. And, uh, and again, looking at, well, it would be better for Colin Castleton. It would be better for Jason Jatobo. Um, 
I, I, I feel it would be better for the entire team who doesn't need small guards to be in help side positions getting pinned by centers on the roll. Um, I would just really like to see it. So, uh, But again, yeah, if they're going to still say, hey, we're going to you know aggressively hedge ball screens and, and, and recover, then yeah, that's, uh, that could be tough for Jason Jatobo. But yeah, if they start playing drop, that's where your you know, 300-pound, 6'11 center could suddenly, uh, suddenly look really, really good. Yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't have the uh, length, Eric, I don't think. To, the other thing about hedging ball screens, the way that they do with, with the demands they place on recovery is that some of that extra length really helps, right? Like a Scotty Lewis really helps. And, and you know, now you're talking about certain situations where Flanders Fleming at 6'4 in heels uh, is, is, uh, is going to be your third biggest guy on the floor. I mean, so that yet another reason to consider the way that you're playing that type of defense. And really, like, what, what's fascinating to me is it's not like Florida was able, you know, Florida places an emphasis on defending the perimeter. But those defense didn't really, like, stifle the Alabamas of the world who were launching threes, right? Like, I mean, they didn't – and then they had games against teams like Missouri – where, you know, teams came in in the 300s shooting the three and just lit Florida up two seasons in a row from from deep. So I don't even think it's just that Florida's hedging, hard hedging ball screens wasn't working, Eric. I think that there's other stuff like that brand of recovery defense wasn't necessarily working either. And and their help side defense was getting burned a lot by good shooting teams, which in theory, if you have more guys out on the perimeter, it's just math. Like you ought to be able to <laughs> defend the perimeter a little bit better. Florida wasn't doing that, so I don't see any necessary disadvantages to, to trying something a little bit different. And it was encouraging to me to hear Mike White say at his summer talks that, you know, everything was under evaluation on the defensive side of the ball because they knew that to be the type of team they want to be next year, they've got to be a top 25 Ken Palm defense. Yeah, I still remember something a conversation I had with uh with an NBA coach four or five years ago. It was after one of his uh his sessions at a coaching clinic I was at. And when you think about drop defenses, which I again I know we just talk so much about a pick and roll defense that Florida doesn't even play, uh, but we hope to. But um uh, again, with this drop defense, you see the 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 big who's guarding the screener drop down to the nail, uh, kind of this right at the center of the free throw line. You see the person guarding the ball handler chase over the top. So, uh, I mean, when I was first coaching basketball, I always thought of it as uh, a defense you play against a really good pull-up shooter because uh, you chase him over the top of the screen. You kind of take away the opportunity for, um, you know, the pull-up three. And I was thinking, oh, in the NBA, that's all about taking away the Steph Curry's, the Damian Lillard's, these guys that just shoot the lights off the dribble. And he said um, – uh, no, it, we don't actually view it that way. Um, we see it as all the other shooters on the floor that we're worried about. Because when you play drop coverage, it allows all three other players who aren't in the ball screen to stay at home on shooters because you're not helping off the corner. Because again, when you're like Florida hedging and uh, playing their hedge ball screen defense, it was the lowest defender on the weak side of the floor would be in the help position who would rotate over to the paint and take the roller. So that's leaving a corner shooter and putting yourself into rotation. Mm. So that's like you said, Neil, there were teams that were just spraying the ball around the floor, finding shooters everywhere. So I just, again, I've just always thought about this conversation. I was just like, no, it's the, it, it's not about the, the, the pick and roll ball handler who can pull up from three that we want to take out. It's all the, you know, catch and shoot bombers on the wing. And uh, again, so that's one of the merits of, of playing 
drop pick and roll coverages. All, all, all of these players away from the ball get to stay home on shooters and you don't allow them to have those easy catch and shoot opportunities. So uh, definitely glad to hear what you said, Neil, about, or with what Mike White said that you caught about how everything on the defensive side of the ball is uh, kind of up for evaluation. And Hey, here's the fact of the matter. Um, I've thrown out the numbers many times, but for the last two years, Florida has gotten picked apart in pick and roll defense. And the thing about pick and roll defense is in modern college basketball, that's going to be 30 to 45% of the plays that you defend. So if you're getting cooked on 30 to 45% of the, the plays you have to defend, your defensive ceiling is 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 fairly low so uh definitely looking forward like that's going to be like when when the ball tips off on on day one that's probably the first thing i'm looking for um that that or the offense uh but uh it's definitely one of the top two things i'm looking for depending on who wins the tip i'll be i'll be excited to see (laughs) yeah no and and look the numbers also bear that out i mean florida was 33rd in the country in kimpom 31st in bartorvik and defending the three-point line uh, so they were doing well at eliminating kind of the modern basketball shot. And, uh, you know, they're getting beat the old fashioned way. I mean, in the one thirties and uh, both those rating systems at defending the two, and that's a product of poor pick and roll defense, really people getting what they want at the rim, despite the presence of an all sec rim protector, like Colin Castleton, um, something that's got to change. We wanted to kind of shift gears from defense a little bit to talk about scoring, which is it's interesting that, you know, I think it's a more productive conversation to have now that we know that Castleton is back. But I think framing it this way for the last two seasons uh, and really three, because I went back and looked at it and remember that Florida ran more sets than they had ever run under Mike White. Uh, three seasons ago when they had by January, we're starting three freshmen, right? Noah Locke, Keontae Johnson and Andrew Nimhard. And so Florida had gone away from less sets and run more sets. And then last season with Kerry Blackshear, they wanted to play this dribble drive offense. They famously scrapped the entire offense after the, they win it, the Charleston Classic, but then scrap the entire offense anyway before conference play. Um, back to more sets by the NCAA tournament, you know, which didn't happen. But by the end of the season, Mike White is calling plays against Kentucky more or less every possession, Eric. Um, and, you know, that's one point I brought up on Stadium and Gale is I wondered how much that in and of itself influenced Florida's lack of defensive adjustments because your head coach is so concerned about what you're running the next time down the floor. And he's always been at every stop, the defensive guy on his staff um, with all credit to Dusty May as kind of a Lieutenant in that area. But long story short, this happens again last season. Um, Some of it, maybe a lot of it, Keontae Johnson related, uh, not because Florida ran their offense through Keontae Johnson, but because, as Mike White put it, there is a difference between running it through someone and kind of knowing that Keontae Johnson was going to be ever present. Uh, And, you know, I do think that those are important things. Like you can build an offense around someone without running it through someone. They lose that piece and again have to reinstall a whole new offense this time in almost February. So I think it's safe to say that Florida needs to avoid that problem next season, Eric. 
So now that you know the personnel, there is a scholarship still open. Maybe we can get to that in a little bit. But what are you thinking in terms of what would be most successful with this personnel grouping? And if you have feedback on on my long soliloquy for the listeners, <laughs> dive right in. Yeah, I mean, well, mate, let's make you know no mistake about it. There's really no situation where changing your entire offense in the middle of the season is a, is a good thing. Uh, mostly because it, it, it probably shows that you came into the season with a poor idea. And, and again, that's something that I said with the dribble drive, whether it was uh, starting Andrew Nemhard and Noah Locke in the backcourt, how you thought that the dribble drive was a good idea for that. I mean, that was just flawed logic to begin with. Um, and then thinking that Scotty Lewis and, and Noah Locke at the wings was going to work for dribble drive. I just, again, I just, if, if you were to say, you know, what do you want to see most offensively entering the season? I, I just want to see something that like fundamentally makes sense. Not we're going to run a dribble drive with multiple guards who can't create off the dribble. Like, like again, that if, if you're going to a coach at any level of basketball and you say, what offense do you want to run? And then they say dribble drive. And then you say, Oh, so you've got multiple guys who can create off the dribble that you're playing. If the next question isn't yes, then you should be like, well, what, what are you doing? And, and, and again, I just am surprised that things got to the point where past, Oh, we want to run dribble drive. Do you have players that are suited for dribble drive? No. Like that should have been the end of the conversation. Um, so what, whatever happens, I just want to see something that, that really fits the personnel. And, and you know what, I'm also really interested again, now that Colin Castleton is back, um, again, we'll, we'll see with, with Keontae Johnson, I guess, but I, I think that, that Colin Castleton is going to be someone they, they want to probably try to feature. And I'm just really interested to see, um, how they do that because you know what, to me, like if you were to say, I'm actually, I'm going to ask you this question, Neil. What letter grade would you assign the Gators in terms of usage of Kerry Blackshear two years ago? Man, I just thought it was – I'm going to give him a C because some of the Princeton sets were so good. Um, and I think you might have even – I'm quite sure because it's you, but I'm pretty sure you may have even at some point during the season just tweeted like, you know, some sort of video compilation of various like Princeton – series that that Florida were, was running and then I, I remember I think it was Gold Camp who kind of asked White if they were doing that concept and he kind of denied it but like the video don't lie and like that was easily what was most efficient for Florida um, and they just didn't do it consistently and and that was concerning to me you know and I'll I'll toss a question back to you not to overload you with responding to my comment and then answering a question but so, like, I do think that you're absolutely right. Like, of course, you want to make sure it's suited to personnel. I'd also like Florida to hunt early shots more again with this group. Um, I thought that that was something they did quite effectively with a team, I guess. I don't think I'm on an island because I do think Eric Fawcett agrees with me. But, like, I felt like the last Chioza team that lost to Texas Tech was a pretty darn good basketball team. They didn't have a very good schedule. They – whether it was the staff or the, the basketball office or the athletic directors, the schedule they put together didn't help them much. And they lost some close games at home that they shouldn't have lost, but they were quite good. And one thing they were spectacular at Eric was getting early buckets. And I do think this is a personnel set that should really be able to do that. Like they need to have regular break sets where whether it's, you know, a little bit like Gonzaga's sort of flex sets um, off the break, I think would would maybe work with these guys. 
something to free dudes up in early offense. Guys like Myron Jones, who I think can hit shots in early offense off the first screen. Like, let's see some of that because to me, making it easier on themselves uh, is going to be so important when you're a little smaller. Yeah, and and I think it's also more important for a team that doesn't have a great isolation score. Like, I don't know how much this team wants to get into late clock situations where it's a ball screen. I mean, yeah, you love the screener in Castleton, but uh, if it's Tyree Appleby running it, you know, do you do you love that? You you probably don't, and that's nothing against Tyree Appleby, who I think is a really good player. Um, it's just again, if you're going to get into a game where it's your best ball handler going downhill on a high ball screen, um, he's probably not elite at that. Um, we'll, we'll see. I hope maybe, maybe he makes strides and, and is a lead at it. Be it. But, uh, but I, but because the, because Florida doesn't have a key, like number one scoring gun, they don't have a Trey man. Uh, I, they are more of a well-rounded team and that that's something that we're definitely all looking forward to that. They do have more capable scores, uh, but to take advantage of those more capable scores, it's like, yeah, the opposing, opposing team shooting a free throw, call something that you're about to run in transition, get your guys running wide. And when you've got Brandon McKissick, Myron Jones and Kwesi Reeves, uh, that those guys are all running to spots in transition. And that is three guys who can, uh, shoot it with Tyree Apple with the ball in his hands, who is a threat to pull up, and Colin Castletune, who's a, running straight down the middle of the floor as rim running. Like that's how you can become more difficult to guard. Because again, when even last year when Florida was was running down the floor with some guys that were non-scores uh, or not capable of of catching and 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 putting the ball on the floor and attacking, they just became a lot more easy to guard. And then of course you've got Trey Mann at the end of a shot clock, so that's awesome. But you don't have that guy, so so looking for early shots before the defense can get set up. I, I think it's something that they really would be wise to do because when the defense does get set up, I'm not sure that they have that, that ace in the hole who can just go get a great look whenever. And your your thoughts on the Blackshear letter grade? Oh, yeah. I mean, C minus, D. I, like, honestly, and, I, and, I, and I'm not even trying to be that rude, but like, right. I mean, there, there a lot of the times it was throw the ball into him and let him post up one-on-one, which is not like the worst play call in the world. But I mean, th- that's the most basic thing that you possibly could have done for a post player that you're trying to feature. So, I mean, can I give a high letter grade for throwing the ball into the, the post and having four guys stand around? Like, like, no, that's, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that just such basic offense that I would, yeah, I think I'm going to go D. And um, I think that, I think that some of the Princeton stuff was, was really good. I also think that honestly, Kerry Blackshear's skill set was more limited than, and, and that's the thing I've, I've, I kind of have pointed out in writing about Colin Castleton coming back and, and wanting to be a shooter is, um, you know, I, I pointed out, and I was being maybe a little bit coy, but that, that <laughs> Florida has not had a stretch five in Mike White's era. And then some people said, well, Kerry Blackshear. And I said, well, Kerry Blackshear shot less than one attempt a game at Virginia Tech and was a below average percentage shooter on less than one attempt per game. And then he came to Florida where he was low volume, less below national average. And most of those threes were wide open because the defense was happy to let him take those threes. So I would say that's not really a stretch five. Like, sure, he was capable of shooting the three. But when defenses were happy to let him shoot uncontested threes, I think that tells you everything you need to know about what kind of a threat he was. So I do think that he was actually a little bit more limited than maybe what some people thought. But but again, I just think, like, I've been looking at, how teams are using the the best post players in the in the country the last year and like Luca Garza wasn't throw the ball into the post 
have four guys move, spot up around the floor and let him go to work one on one. It was angled post ups when he could when he caught the ball. It was like turn in one second and, and make his move, or it was a, a seal where the ball gets reversed around him where he does his work early and it gets dumped into him. And again, he's able to make one move and score. Like there's just so much more to post offense and featuring a post player than throw it into him at nine feet from the hoop and let him back down and try to drop step hook, a hook shot into a inevitable double team. So uh, again, this is where I'm hoping to see some far more advanced post offensive concepts than, than just throw it into post up. Or of course our favorite on the podcast, uh, lose to Florida state and say, Oh, well we missed, uh, you know, carry Blackshear on some duckins. Uh, that, that's just not what I'm hoping for with Colin Castleton. And, and yeah, there was times where, yeah, you could just throw it into him and spot up and he was able to make his, make him play one-on-one. But if you just want to be, you want to really feature him, you know, go look at the angled post-ups from, from Kansas, who's able to get seals and, and, and enter the ball so easily, or look how Iowa used Luca Garza. And again, not to suggest that Colin Castleton's Luca Garza, but I'm just watching these beautifully designed sets from Iowa. And it's, you know, you could have, Isaiah Stokes scoring off some of these plays. Like it was just, they were, they were so well-designed. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I was not particularly plussed with how they used Kerry Blackshear. Some of that was Kerry Blackshear's limitations, no question. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to aim a little higher here for, for Colin Castleton and, uh, and, and try to get some more creative play designs for him on the block. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and even if it's not Colin Castleton, I just think finding quicker ways to score, and more innovative ways than let's feed the post are good. Cause I really think Florida's best feed the post player is Jason Jatobo. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure necessarily how productive the other three front court options, Colin Castleton, uh, CJ Felder or Anthony DeRuji are going to be. And in fact, I would venture to say, uh, you know, I get back to maybe incorporating some flex concepts. It's something I've been, thinking about a lot because Eric and I have postponed this offense show for a couple weeks. So I've just kind of been, Oh, maybe I'll watch some more videos. Like I really liked the way that, you know, Gonzaga would use Corey Kispert and sort of in a flex concept where they kind of start in a box set and then they flashed Kispert towards the post. Right. And the goal was to get a guy who can score looking for the ball moving towards the basket. Like it's not a real complicated scheme, but you're still, it's still like Eric said, it's an angled cut gives you an opportunity to set a screen down low or, or pin someone down and he can catch and turn to the basket or he can feed a shooter outside, you know, and, and it's not just them. And I know I'm picking the two best teams in the country here. So, you know, people might be like, well, you know, Neil's picking the best, <laughs> the best teams like you know, how hard is that for them but it's not like with Flo Thamba Baylor had like an elite post score right like they weren't feeding the post for Flo Thamba all the time like sure he's a good player he started on a national champion but I think like you take a sixth or seventh man like Matthew Meyer and get him on an angle cut to the basket somebody that passes as well as him like you stress defenses that way so feeding the post doesn't necessarily have to mean feed the post, turn your back and score. It's just about stressing defenses and occupying defenders. I mean, the one thing I'll say about Gonzaga too, is like, you know, outside of Corey Kispert, they didn't have that many shot makers on Gonzaga, which like, again, I, I don't know if they had an elite shot maker outside of, outside of Corey Kispert, who's obviously awesome, but it's like their offense was so good because they just got such high quality shots because they, they ran stuff like that. So it's not like, 
like again, I mean, everyone's got film. Look at what look at what Gonzaga does. It's not like they had ridiculous shot makers. They got ridiculous shots. So you could absolutely replicate what they do. And uh, something that I really loved. This is going to pivot Neil to a different player that I think Florida is going to need to design some offense for. But um, as you know, some people who follow me on Twitter might see that uh, a couple weeks ago I was tweeting out all these plays from HBCUs, and and something that just really struck me from uh, the Miak and the Swack that I just saw so many teams running variations of, and you do see it everywhere else in basketball as well. Uh, but you see that flex screen where you set that cross screen across the uh, uh, across the key for a post player. Um, and then you see that player who set the screen getting a down screen and popping out to the top of the three-point line for an open look. So that kind of flex screen to screener action, you see every mm-hmm. team run it. You see it on inbound sets a, a, a ton. Um, but uh, I, I really love it because you get that flex screen. You get that opportunity for a quick duck into a big to, to score easily. And if it's not there, you get a really good shooter popping out for uh, what's probably a, a, a decent look at three, because especially when you set that flex screen, uh, the player who sets the flex screens defender is almost always going to help to make sure that that pass isn't there. So the shooter now has a little bit of advantage, gets a down screen, boom, he's at the three point line. Um, so I'm looking at Myron Jones, a player that we need to see Florida run screens for uh, something that uh, we've pointed out on the podcast. Uh, Myron Jones, great points per game, great three-point percentage numbers. But when you look at how he scored, it was a lot of coming off screens. So I think if Florida is thinking, oh, we're going to have a 15-point per game score on our team, um, you've got to be like, well, we've got to use him like he was used when he had that production. And uh, that was getting him off screens. So, Neil, again, what do you uh, what do you kind of think about Myron Jones? And, and do you think uh, – do you think Florida is going to incorporate some more screens for him? How do you, or how do you think they're going to use Myron Jones? Well, like I said, I think first screen in early shot clock offense needs to be for Myron Jones. Um, and I think that needs to be, you know, I'm not going to put up a, a percentage on it to guess, but I'd like to see that cons- fairly consistently have him when he's on the floor, that first early shot clock screen, especially off a miss. Like let's make that, for Myron Jones. I also like the idea that you're talking about with either Flanders Fleming or if Keontae Johnson can play like those Corey Kispert angled flex sets where you kind of start in a box set is perfect for Keontae. But, um, and that's an example of how you get points in the paint with a guy that can either attack a closeout or make a really good cut or have the vision to make the pass. And you know, if it's Keontae, the defenders are going to help. So like, Let's get that sort of flex action where they peel off and help and Myron Jones is in a corner somewhere. Like, I think all of that is, is great stuff, but yeah, he's not a guy that is going to be able to create his own shot. um, But he's the guy you want taking threes. And I think Florida has without Keontae or with Keontae, they have Flanders Fleming. That's going to be able to create his own looks more at the basket. And then Kawasi Reeves, I think, who we haven't mentioned until this second on the podcast, I think can do that some. Um, but we really want Myron shooting out there. I mean, Flanders Fleming is a player that I'm enjoying on film as I watch more of him, Eric. Uh, it'll be interesting to see him jump up a level. Um, but I'm not a guy I want shooting a ton of threes in the SEC. So they've got to find creative ways to help him generate offense for other players or to get into the free throw line. Yeah, I mean, Flan Fleming is is probably the guy I'm most interested to see how he's used because again, you look at um, you look at Brandon McKissick. He was a player that you know was, was pretty good in ball screens for sure, and and also could obviously spot up. You saw Myron Jones use screens a lot. Uh, it was easy to see how those guards like how their games are going to translate to the high major level. But yeah, yeah, I mean, playing in the league that 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 Fleming played in, it was like 
it was a lot of him playing bully ball, just like dribbling down his guy from the wing, like Charles Barkley and, and turning his shoulder into them and laying it up. And there's just, it was, it was, I mean, it was there for him and he played the advantage and, and that's awesome. And he's obviously was super productive that way. And I think there's a lot of value in just being able to find where you can get value and, 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 and hammer it over and over again. And that was Flan Fleming. But I just, again, just like watching him play, the buckets were not ones that you could really translate to, to the SEC. So again, it's like, obviously he was the highest point per game transfer that, uh, that they brought in. I think he was at like over 20, like really, really great numbers. But yeah, just looking at how he was used and and um, his his pick and roll ball handling numbers weren't weren't great. Um, yeah, he's like a really you know thick six three or you know like you said six four in heels. I think you might have mentioned earlier in the podcast. Uh, but yeah, not not someone who I think you really want handling a ton. Um, not someone who's a great spot up shooter. So he's just someone that. I, I'm most interested to see how they use him for sure. A uh, decent ball handler for sure. Not a great ball handler, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you maybe in some matchups he does have, if he's playing well, and again, we'll see because I, I, I wonder if like, if Keontae Johnson doesn't end up playing or if Keontae Johnson ends up being a full-time power forward in the eyes of the coaching staff, then your small forwards are probably, well, yeah, I we'll, we'll see what they think of Niles Lane and what position they see him at, but I think it could be Fleming and, you know, Kwesi Reeves at, at, at the three. So that advantage of, of size might not be there for Fleming, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how, how, how he'll be used. He's someone who definitely in, in terms of like, if you played some of the flex, I mean, yeah, physical screener down low, physical guy, you can turn and score. Uh, we'll see. But uh, also someone who is able to, you know, it's not like he's like straight line speed guy, not that he's super athletic, but, but looked really comfortable playing with pace and, uh, that's of course another question. I don't even think I, yeah, I think a lot of people, Neil, are just going to be wondering, do we think that Florida is going to play fast? And honestly, I don't really, I don't really have any comment on that, to be honest, like, uh, maybe, um, I don't think they played that fast last year. And I think that some of the numbers that suggested they played significantly faster were misleading and, and I wrote about them. So looking forward to this group, it's like, yeah, they definitely have some guys who could play faster, but do I think they're going to play faster? I'm not totally sure. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, like, and again, I think we've spent a lot of time on this. Am I muted again? No, I'm not. Okay. Uh, I think we've spent a lot of time on this podcast and this segment about offense talking about playing smart. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but, like, let's just three years, like Eric said, and like I said in my long rant at the top, I mean, Florida's done it three years in a row where they've had to reinstall a new offense, and that is not okay. Uh, And to do it once is not good. Um, but to really do it more or less three seasons where it's not just adjustments, like they are changing what they schematically want to do on the fly in the middle of the regular season. And you want to know how you lose some games. That's a way that you lose some games, you know, and I don't look, you know, I don't want Flanders Fleming to shoot 153 pointers next year. When we talk about how they're going to use Flan Fleming, you know, I thought in fact that, because he's so good at, I still think it with his size and physicality in the SEC, he's going to be able to match up with some underclassmen type players that are a little smaller and get to the free throw line. I want to see him attack the bucket. He's a little bigger than like a JD Note, but you know, Eric Musselman, the numbers on JD Note from downtown, like were still good, but he was a high volume three point shooter who shot 33% from deep. Um, you know, so what did Eric Musselman do? He said, my man, you're going to take like 40 less threes than you took 
at JU last season, and you're going to attack the bucket about 20 more times. And that worked. J.D. Dote ended up being a pretty important player on a team that was the last SEC team playing. So, you know, I think that's kind of the role that Fan Fleming needs to carve out. And, like, let's play smart. Let's use him to create buckets for other people by attacking the rim and stressing defenses. That's a great comparison. And, and you know, I did say I wasn't going to have any any comments on how fast Florida is going to play, but I've changed my mind because I do have a comment. But, you know, the one the reason that I think that and again, I've said it on the podcast so much and, and we've written written about and everything. But the reason I think that Florida hasn't been able to play fast is like they just don't have enough guys that are capable of handling the ball at, at top speed. And I we, of course, saw it at I, I, unfortunate moment in the NCAA tournament where Noah Locke dribbled the ball off his foot. Uh, we saw uh, Scotty Lewis get into situations where he left his feet because he was scared of dribbling the ball more and was looking for a pass and it wasn't there. And you can just look back on these, the, the last recent teams with, uh, with Kayvon Allen, same kind of thing, not the most confident guy pushing the ball, having the ball in his hands. And yeah, it's all great to have a Chris Chioza or an Andrew Nemhard who can or Trey Mann who can push with the ball in his hands, but you need other guys that you can push the ball up the wing to who can then put the ball on the floor a few times and, and finish. And um, I think you do look up and down the lineup and it's like, well, Kwesi Reeves absolutely going to bring that uh, Brandon McKissick. If he's not playing point guard, if he's a two guard, totally going to bring that Flan Fleming. Uh, he's going to bring that uh, Niles lane. He's going to bring that. So I actually do think as much as I said, I don't think I have a comment on will Florida play faster. I am cautiously optimistic because Florida is going to be, uh, again, it's not going to be, oh, defensive rebound goes into the hands of Trey Mann or Andrew Nemhart going back to the last couple of years. He turns up the floor and sees guys who are not capable of dribbling the ball and sprinting on either side of him. Like that's not going to be the case. He's going to have guys who are capable of making plays off the dribble um, at a full sprint. So um hope to see that and hey if, if if Fleming can be one of those guys who who really thrives in that role of not that he's bringing the ball up the floor but if he if you can get a quick hit ahead on the wing to him and he's capable of reading the floor in a split second and, and either making that next pass or putting it on the floor and putting pressure on the rim uh, he could become a very valuable offensive player and like I said I, I'm not entirely sure where he fits in a half court offensive setting at the SEC uh, but if he can score in that early offense uh, well and you you don't need to worry about what plays you're calling for him or, or where he sits in your called plays because uh, he can create offense that way. Yeah, I like it. I, I think this is a fun conversation. It's one we should continue uh, later this summer. But I think, you know, hopefully we've put some productive thoughts out there for the listeners to, to think about as it relates to how Florida can improve offensively. They haven't really been that bad despite all these changes. If you look at metrics, right, offensively the last couple of years, but, you know, the scoring droughts and things like that that drive the fan base crazy and certainly cost Florida some basketball games, uh, Oral Roberts, um, you know, you have to you have to overcome those things. And, and one way to do that, I think, is just to play smarter from the beginning so that by January, by February, you're used to what you're doing and you know what you're going to do. Um, so any parting thoughts on offense, we can transition to uh, some kind of potpourri stuff with some listener questions floating in. <laughs> no, let's get to listener questions. That's uh, it's definitely what I want to do. All right. So our first listener question comes from uh, Gator Brent, and he asks uh, what the draft outlook is for Trey Mann after the combine and workouts, and is there any chance Scotty Lewis gets drafted? Ooh, great questions. Uh 
I will say, I mean, Trey Mann is one of the kind of widest ranges that I, I think you really see about guards in the, you know, middle to late first to some people that have him as a second round pick. Uh, I, I think that Mo, you know, there's there's a lot of Nick fans who really like him at like 19 or 20, and they're uh, they're probably the most vocal on Twitter. Obviously, that doesn't equate to actual draft strategy, but it's good to see that Nick fans really like him. Um, Houston, I think, has 23, 24. Uh, they're just looking for talent at all positions. I think if you can take a, a, a again, I would say like a huge upside play on on Trey Mann. Like, I don't think that Trey Mann is like the safest. He's going to walk into the NBA, and you know exactly what he is. Um, I would say that's not the case with him. And then you look at his smoothness and athleticism and ability to shoot off the bounce and his dribble combinations. And you, you could see like, yeah, he could end up being one of the best players in the draft with just that high end talent. So I think Houston at 23, 24, I think they are. Uh, I think that's, that's a place and that's a place he's had workouts. Um, I think that would make a lot of sense. Uh, that, and that's probably the range that I have him. I'll, how about um, Neil, how about you talk Trey man? And then we, we go to Scotty, Scotty Lewis after that. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah, I think that teams that traditionally like upside guys uh, are the teams that I keep hearing about with Trey Mann, to Eric's point, uh, not just the Knicks. Um, the Rockets often draft that way. We've heard a lot about them. The Hawks uh, is a very intriguing one. I mean, you don't draft Cam Reddish where they drafted Cam Reddish if you aren't in love with the idea of upside. And there's a whole, like, dark state segment of Twitter right now, just gushing over Cam Reddish's playoff debut. And like, it's hard not to just cough and be like, he only played because of an injury. <laughs> like <laughs> I agree. Amazing basketball game. It's instructive. He also didn't play in any others, <laughs> um, but the Hawks do draft that way. I think the Hawks would be a good place um, for him. And I know that'll make some of our listeners happy that are in love with the Hawks, but I really think that they have to just ease a little bit of the pressure on Trey Young as a ball handler. Um, and I do think Trey Mann is capable of doing that in the NBA. Do you, Eric? And then we'll get to Lewis. Uh, yeah, I definitely think he's he's capable, and that's going to be his role, and that's going to be kind of an interesting fit because I think for – um, a lot of players that enter the draft is late first round picks. Um, you've kind of got to settle in as, as a role player at first. And and yeah, Trey Mann is someone who's going to be best leading offenses and, and running pick and roll. So that's going to be an interesting fit for him at, at the start. And it could make for an interesting year or two as he, as he kind of figures things out and gets to the level where he can be a capable offensive initiator. But yeah, for a team that's uh, like, like Atlanta, uh, you see that they kind of valued getting some secondary playmakers with Danilo Gallinari, who they prioritized, and and Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, they, um, I, I think that it just definitely fit their their kind of mold recently with uh, to get someone like Trey Mann. And you know, Scotty Lewis is one that I think is very interesting. Of course, he went to the combine and did really well and tested well, like many people expected. Um, I kind of suggested um, that maybe I would thought he wouldn't test as well at the combine as as he actually did, just because. Uh, again, we kind of see how he how he defends at times, and 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 again, I was like, hey, may, maybe we go up, maybe we should go to the combine and find out that he's not as good laterally as as maybe people thought. Uh, but of course, you know, I was kind of wrong, and uh, he tested really awesome. Of course, um, someone who's a elite high school sprinter, he dominated the sprints, did really well in um, the agility stuff, and uh, did really well in in the vertical testing. I, again, I, I would honestly, this is, this is a true statement. I think some people are going to listen to it and think it is so stupid, but I truly believe this. Like if he wasn't signed with clutch sports, 
I do not think that he would be drafted. But because he signed with Clutch Sports, who secretly runs the NBA, uh, for those people who don't know, that's Rich Paul, the most powerful agent um, in basketball, well, in sports, really. Straight, um, straight facts. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you want to look at any of the crazy trades that have went on in the NBA over the last couple of years, many of them were openly orchestrated by Rich Paul. Um, he is the godfather. Um, he does, or many teams do exactly what what he wants. Um, he's a very, very powerful agent, and his his there's there's teams that would. And again, I'm not being facetious here, but like there's teams that would draft him with a second round pick. Um, just to do Rich Paul a favor and give him give Rich Paul a commission check. So I mean, he's someone who believes in Scotty Lewis, and maybe that means that that we should all believe in him a little more because Rich Paul is absolutely incredible at what he does. Um, but uh, yeah, Scotty Lewis just has unquestionably the most powerful agent in basketball um, behind him that is going to be advocating for him. And I think for that reason, a team will make uh, play for him late at the end of the second round. And uh, if it was any other agent, I honestly would not have said that. Nice. I'm going to go ahead and tell you all who I think is going to draft Scotty Lewis and why I think he's going to get drafted. And then we'll move on to the next NBA question. I guess I don't really have to – not the next – well, you know what? We're going to do another NBA question for our boy Malik Grady, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, yeah, I mean, Eric went into all the reasons that I think the clutch sports connection is very critical. I think the Detroit Pistons, who have three – second round picks, uh, which gives them a ton of room to just be like flyer on this guy that blew out the combine on every sort of credential. And also they just hired like one of the great developers of talent in the sport and John Beeline. Um, and they can stash him in the G league. The Pistons will take Scotty Lewis in the second round. There's my Florida basketball or hot take tonight. I like that. Hey, if there's a team that's going to do it, that would make sense. And um, one thing, the, the last thing I'll say about Scotty Lewis, I know I've been down on his defense for two years on this podcast and I, I am really cheering for Scotty Lewis. I, I truly am. And uh, yeah, but, um, here's the one thing that I do think really works in Scotty Lewis's favor. So Scotty Lewis's problems in college were related to the fact that he was not a very good on ball defender and he liked to gamble all the time. The strength of Scotty Lewis was that he was an, an incredible recovery defender um, using that length, using Using that speed, losing using that jumping ability, he had some incredible defensive plays because he was so so good as a recovery defender. And when you see the way, like this is one of the big differences in play between the NBA and college. College is so much stack the strong side of the floor with help defense, sit in a stance, um, make it tougher for teams to reverse the ball. Um, that's kind of college where like offenses are so good in the NBA. NBA defenses are designed all about you are going to get beat off the dribble. We are going to be in rotation. Now, how do we recover out of it? And while Scotty Lewis struggled in the college defenses where it was like, hey, we've got to be structured. You've got to be able to keep a guy in front of you. While he struggled with that, NBA defenses are all about you are going to get beat off the dribble. Where do we go from there? And Lewis is actually, I think, going to really thrive in those styles of defense. I think his his ability to scramble and his ability to be a, a kind of like makeup ground defender that kind of thrives in chaos a little bit. I actually think that's going to work out for him a little bit. So while I am down on his defense in college, I'm going to say I think he's actually he might be suited better for the NBA style of defense than, than college. Don't hate that take. This is for Malik. So if you guys don't care about the magic draft, then fast forward <laughs> through this portion. I'm going to read some stream of consciousness from Malik real quick about four picks and then we'll just go from there. But um, 
Yeah, no. He said, uh, I keep coming back to Moses Moody to the Magic at eight. Sorry, dude. He's getting drafted by the Pacers. That was my part, not his part. Uh, he measured an inch taller than Keon Johnson uh, and has a seven-foot wingspan. Plus, he was 25 pounds heavier than Keon. I also like uh, Giddy's production and passing at a young age, but I don't know about his long-term scoring and shooting if they're already taking Kuminga. There's a lot to unpack there, but like – Tell Malik what you would do with those picks if you were the Magic. Because I'm big in the Jonathan Kaminga camp, but people want to hear what Eric Fawcett thinks about the Orlando oh. Magic's draft. Oh, man, I, I love Moses Moody to uh, to the Magic. I think that they might end up having to take him a couple picks over a consensus. Uh, something that I think that people don't maybe realize all the time is that uh, a lot of really elite shooters, they have negative wingspans. It's something that you, you – uh, there's actually been studies that also just show like the mechanics of shooting a basketball. Having a lot of length really hurts you as you have your elbow and your shooting hand further from the body as you bring it up. And that's why you see guys like J.J. Redick who has like a negative three wingspan, like just a t- like really, really short arms. He, sh- he can shoot the ball so well. You also see that with a lot of guys who can shoot off the dribble really well because their arms are so short that the ball's closer to their body. They're able to have quick releases. So for Moses Moody to be able to shoot the ball as effectively as he does uh, with such length, I think, and especially for the Magic, who have historically drafted so much on length and physical gifts, I think it's just a, a perfect kind of marriage and and a team that just really needs shooting. Um, that really makes sense. And uh <sighs> I, I do think that uh, that Johnson would be a pretty interesting pick for them. Uh, just again, I just I, I'm so impressed watching him more the way he played defense, uh, kind of the way he the, the burst he has off the dribble. I, I know that they're probably not really looking for for guards as much as they as they have kind of really done well to um, kind of build out their guard core and trading for Fultz and and, and Cole Anthony was just such a good pick for them um, last year. But uh, yeah, I think I think Moody's the the key pick and and the one I'm probably most excited for for them because I do think he'll be there for the Magic. Yeah, you know, I really do like the idea of them taking uh, Keon Johnson over Moody. I just think he's a little bit better of a passer. And, you know, I know Moses can shoot, but I really think Jonathan Kaminga is going to become a scorer who shoots the ball a little bit better. I already think he's a scorer. I just think he's going to shoot the ball a little bit better. And what I would say is, you know, I think the second guy, if you take a scorer like Kaminga at five – then maybe you take a guy that passes a little better at eight just because you're looking at a roster with a lot of ball-heavy people. And I know like the easy retort to that is, well, Moses Moody doesn't really require the ball that much. Look at Eric Musselman's team, which you know he was plenty content to not be always the initiator. And I think that's true, but I don't know if that parlays its way into the NBA as he's a young player trying to figure it out. Yeah, that that's fair. I would. Uh, I still definitely. I I don't know. I I would love the Moody pick for them. I and I think that just the yeah. way that they're so desperate for three point shooting, I think you might have sure. to take the best three point shooter available at that point. I don't think they want to dip it like the Corey Kispert who doesn't uh, doesn't fit their kind of physical tools. So, uh, but if you did Kaminga and uh, if you did Kaminga and then your your kind of forwards moving forward are Chumo Kiki and Jonathan Isaac and and Jonathan Kaminga, I mean, like man, that's a athletic kind of three four combo for the next few years so uh yeah Kaminga Moody I think you've got to be really happy for a Magic fan who could um use some joy because it's just so funny how the just draft lottery balls just never fall in the favor of the Orlando Magic no matter what worst luck ever but uh, they could end up with uh, two really good picks here yeah very curious how that never seems to help them um (laughs) 
No, I'm not going to spout off conspiracy theories here. Uh, we had a question from an Oklahoma State fan who said, uh, Oklahoma State returns everyone except Cade and added Kansas transfer Bryce Thompson and Texas Tech transfer Tyreek Smith. Are you guys ready to get pounded in the SEC Big 12 Challenge? <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love the trash talk. This is awesome for like this deep in the sub. Um, def- to have a passionate fan like that. Um, you know what? Even if we lose, I will take the trade of uh, of Pastrana. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's all right. But uh, uh, yeah, they still got to figure out how to shoot. No question about that. Um, so even, even with those transfers, I mean, older players are usually going to shoot the ball better and they were one of the youngest teams in the country last year. Uh, mm. So will they be better shooting the ball? Absolutely. So I actually do think they're going to be a really good team. I think that uh, they ran really good stuff. That was something that um, I, I looked at when I was did my article of like, what could Eric Pastrana, you know, come bring to uh, bring to Florida. I love their Iverson series. I tweeted that out a little while ago. You could definitely see it, but uh, they run a lot of good actions out of a really simple Iverson entry. That's really good. So, um, and, and running offense when you have like no shooters on the floor, is just a, a really tough thing to do. And they found a way to be pretty good offensively despite that. So yeah, big, big fan of, of Oklahoma state, big fan of Mike Boynton. Um, I do think they're going to be really good. Um, I would not anticipate them um, pounding or crushing or, <laughs> whatever word he used uh, in the big 12 sec uh, challenge, but it's going to be a good game. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a fun matchup. Obviously Eric Pastrana adds some intrigue to it. Um, I'll tell you what, they better shoot the three. Kate, Kate Cunningham shot it at a 41% clip. Uh, I think everybody knows that that's watched any NBA draft coverage. Uh, beyond that, their best guy was Bryce Williams who shot 32% from deep. Oh, like everybody, everybody talks about Avery Anderson my man couldn't hit the broadside of a barn from deep. So like, you know, I think you drop off him. Like, I, I don't know. It's a good squad. And I have an immense amount of respect for Mike Anderson. I was surprised at their exit in the NCAA tournament. But then again, like, <laughs> did anyone see that team coming that they uh, eventually fell to? No, I don't think so. So, Oh, well, and, and of course, like Liberty plays like the exaggerated pack line defense. So you just knew that they were going to sag into the paint. And um, I think that, oh man, I think Oklahoma State hit, like they went like two for 18 or something from the three-point line in that game. And li- like Liberty is just all about pack line, sag into the paint. Um, it's just like the exact opponent you don't want to see if you're Oklahoma State. So um, I don't want to say bad matchup because it's like, well, it's a bad matchup because you're not good at this style of bad, like of shooting the basketball, which is a pretty big side of the game. So I'm not like excusing Oklahoma State. Um, so I won't say it was a bad matchup. I will say that Liberty was perfectly equipped to to um, exploit the flaws of Oklahoma State. I love it. Um, so that's a fun one. And then we'll close listener questions portion because we have one other thing to get to tonight with uh, Sarah in Tampa asking uh, Mike White's never had um his roster not full beginning of the season what say you eric fawcett about mike white filling out his roster i mean i'm at mike white might be tired of taking guys that don't work out or aren't good personality fits for the team so i mean everything about like not really taking high school players in 2021 outside of a stud in Kwesi Reeves has been kind of about the fact that they are just like, didn't want to take a high school recruit unless they were 1000% sure that it was a fit. So they ended up not getting a high school recruit. So I see this open scholarship and I just think they are not looking to, um, 
not looking to bring anyone into the mix unless they're pretty sure it's it's or not pretty sure really sure it's going to be a, a good fit so uh, i'm pretty interested like there's still some like interesting names in the the transfer portal none of which i think florida has has reached out to other than um i think isaiah smalls um is a player that they reached out to um who said that he was going to announce his final two schools on Twitter this afternoon. And then I went to go find the tweet like five minutes later and it was deleted. So not totally sure where, he, where he's at, but uh, uh, he's like a six foot seven um, kind of like combo forwardy kind of guy. Like not exactly what I, what I think Florida might be looking for, but is a young player with some, some upside. So maybe, maybe there'd be mutual interest, but, but anyways, I, I, at this point, I think that Florida might just be keeping the scholarship open. I just don't really see the avenues to what they uh, might be looking to fill it. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, I agree. I, I thought if they were going to offer a high school big, they would have done it so that he was on campus by summer B. Hmm. Uh, so I really don't think that that recruiting class gets expanded. It would definitely be somebody from the portal. Uh, I know I saw a couple of you guys, get really excited when Marcus Bagley announced he was in the portal. He was in the portal for like an hour <laughs> and then tweeted, run it back with like some video that was clearly made like hours before. Uh, I'm sure the production value on it at least took a couple hours to make. So he knew what he was doing. He's back to Arizona state. Um, that would have kind of intrigued me. Cause like, I just am of the mind that you can never have enough wings. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I th I feel like maybe they're waiting on that midseason transfer game. Yeah, I mean, if there's ever going to be a year where a lot of midseason transfers could be available, I think it could be like after a COVID year with with so much player movement that this is the chance for some player to show up and not be totally sure, um, or you know, realize maybe they they didn't choose the best home or just is not working out or there's a high four-star player who um, wasn't able to visit the campus that he committed to. And he decides mid-year that he doesn't want to be where he's at. Yeah. I could certainly just see this, this like if ever a time for there to be some really good mid-season guys, this, this could be it. Or um, maybe they just don't want, you know, they just want that scholarship to be totally clean moving forward. Like they don't want to take uh, Isaiah Smalls, who's, uh, going to be a junior or actually I guess a sophomore because he would get the you know last year back I, I just again like not taking a guy who's a sophomore just because um, if it doesn't work out maybe he ends up being on your campus for two years when you'd wish he wasn't or something like that so so hey maybe they're just totally keeping their powder dry maybe that scholarship's going to end up for a uh, Jack May or Alex Klatsky and um, maybe it's uh, maybe it's them not wanting to um, have a guy on campus that they think that they won't be able to play and keep satisfied with with minutes. Um, not totally sure, but yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to guess right now, it would be that that scholarship remains open and uh, yeah, maybe ends up with uh, Jack Mayer, Alex uh, Klatsky. Yeah, I mean, why not? And um, I know they, you know, have a lot of, they've spent a lot of the offseason praising various things that Jack May has done on their social media accounts. Like maybe that's coming. Uh, you know, and, and great. Good for him if, if that uh, ends up going down. We're going to close um, with this interesting discussion from this Jeff Borzello article that was on the ESPN Plus application about, you know, who has the most to offer in SEC men's basketball as a program. And basically, like, they put Kentucky in this tier one. And they said that in the age of Billy Donovan, Florida would be in tier one and it would be Kentucky and Florida. And they said now, you know, Florida is in tier two, but Borzello writes, 
that uh, he still thinks that here. He says the gap between Kentucky and everyone else is a little bit larger than it was when Billy Donovan was in the league. And the next here is tight, but Florida is clearly the number two. The Gators have won national championships in the last 20 years. They have missed just four NCAA tournaments in the last 25 years. And they are the lone SEC school in the state of Florida, which an immense with an immense amount of talent. They're the flag bearer for the SEC in the state. They're really close to Atlanta and always seem to recruit Tennessee well. They've won national titles. They have players in the NBA, and it's 60 degrees and sunny in the winter, which kids down south like, and Leonard Hamilton is 76. He can't do that forever. Uh, it is clearly the second-best job an SEC assistant said. And it was cool because the article quotes like a bunch of other people. So let's just start there. Agree or disagree that Florida is the second best job in the SEC? Well, first of all, he shouldn't challenge Leonard Hamilton, who is immortal. Uh, so he will, he can do this forever. I believe. <laughs> so, un- un- unfortunately for, for, you know, Florida and Florida fans. Um, but in, in terms of Florida being second best, I, I, I think so. I mean, like, like, I guess you can kind of value well, the, this entire kind of conversation is based around what do you value, but man, does having the best state for basketball talent in the country matter to me? Um, that might be the number one thing, um, whether, or, you know, institutional spending and being close in proximity to the most talented players in the country. Um, that's just super important. So I think that you just add in the, the, the amount of uh, obviously resources that university of Florida has in terms of just what they're going to put behind the team financially. And then uh, just be, to be in such close proximity to, uh, to so many good players. Uh, that's just so important. And I know some people will like, again, there's people that argue that, you know, maybe Arkansas is like sneakily the second best job. And, and I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you can really kind of fairly argue that. Um, but man, I just keep thinking back to like, the, the the in-state talent and and how much that that kind of matters for recruiting and whether it's not even in-state talent it's like the players who come down to play the big tournaments in florida um or nearby in atlanta or um stuff like that so um I, yeah I, I i could certainly listen to arguments from from different schools um but i do think that for that florida would be uh, would be the second and i don't think yeah i don't obviously don't think that's a hot take or anything yeah and i mean i would add like montverde is the closest national power the closest power five school to Montverde is Florida uh, or power six in college basketball, as I always point out, but um, you know, still, and I guess with the power six, the closest school is UCF, but I don't think UCF has landed anyone from, Oh wait, Nope. UCF isn't in the power six. Uh, they're not in the big East. So yeah. So it's, it's Florida. Um, good job, Neil. Um, yeah. So the arc, the argument for Arkansas was made in the piece. And um, I thought pretty interesting stuff. And again, he just quoted a bunch of assistants and they did pick Florida two and Arkansas three, but Borzillo notes it was close. And he says, one big thing Arkansas is going for it is its status as a basketball school. A Kentucky assistant said the following in some conferences, it might not matter, but in the sec, there are only three basketball schools, Missouri, Arkansas, and us uh, giving away his status as a Kentucky assistant. (laughs) Um, Another advantage the Razorbacks have developed under Muss is their ability to land transfers. Being perceived as a basketball school is a huge advantage for them, a longtime assistant at a football school said. There's times during our signing day in the winter of spring football that stuff creeps into a really good season for a team, 
<laughs> for example, at Florida in 2006, the football team was so good, and then everybody was quick to start following the basketball team in January. For Arkansas and Kentucky, that stuff is separate. During basketball season, Arkansas is always a bigger story. Missouri, same thing. Texas A&M could have a huge season, but if they signed seven five-star stars in football on signing day in late January and were 21-0 and in hoops, more people would care about signing day in football. Uh, you know, I think that those are, those are good points, and I do think the transfer portal changes things. And the thing that Arkansas can compete with Florida and Kentucky on is – uh, facilities and investment and administrative support. So I do think they are clearly like number three. I would put them a little bit ahead of Tennessee uh, in that regard, although they have one of the best of all. Uh, Thompson Bowling is amazing. But, um, you know, there is kind of the the argument for Arkansas. Yeah, I, I mean, it kind of cuts both ways because I'll tell you this much. Some of these coaches that coach at football schools – uh, they love the, the fact that they coach at football schools because if you lose a non-conference game in December to, or sorry, like no, yeah, late November to, you know, whoever, um, and your fan base doesn't even really notice or care, or, you know, a, a bunch of your fan base doesn't notice or care. Some of them really like that. Like, again, like when Florida loses to, I'm trying to give an example, you know, Loyola Chicago a few years ago, you know, us basketball fans were like, oh, that was a, that's a rough one to lose at home and stuff like that. But I mean, it didn't, you know, really register past that. I mean, if Arkansas does that and you're at a, you know, basketball school, uh, those register a lot louder. So I, I know talking to a couple of coaches that uh, coach at football schools or have, have coached at football schools, they love that there's not eyes on them until January. So for some people, that is a, that is a true advantage that they don't have to feel the heat until January and you could lose three by games in non-conference but if you start winning a bunch of games in in conference play uh they don't even notice your your fan base so no like so so again i think that can kind of cut both ways i would say that i would you know i, I do think it's better to have fans care year round like make no mistake about it but if we're ranking this as jobs i just i i, I know that that matters to uh that, that 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 does matter to some some coaches in a different way who just love to not have the spotlight on them until until conference play yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's one Billy Donovan used to make quite a bit. One interesting team that they put in Tier 3 was Missouri, despite it being a basketball school, and I thought that was very interesting. And, again, it was the the assistant from Kentucky who gave himself away as being an assistant from Kentucky who uh, at that point was in on the joke and um, said, you know, the thing about Missouri is that it's a very good job in a vacuum, but – they really messed their basketball program up when they left the Big 12. Let me tell you why. Say you're a kid and you visit Florida in January on an official, and then you visit Missouri. Let's say you're from Atlanta. You go to Columbia, there's snow on the ground. It's 20 degrees. You go to Gainesville, it's 70 and sunny. <laughs> How hard is that choice? Um, and, you know, so he was talking about how a lot of the elite talent in that area of which there's plenty in St. Louis and Chicago, they have access to, they go to big 12 or big 10 schools. So the challenge for Quanzo Martin and every coach at Missouri since has been saying, look, we have this great gym. We have great facilities. Yeah. Come play in the sec. It's harder. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's a great point. And, uh, I'm also just laughing because I mean, considering that Kentucky also had two assistants leave this uh, off season, um, I'm also thinking that there's only like one assistant that might have really been available <laughs> to do this uh, do this article. So not only did this assistant give away what school he's from, uh, he might have given away you know who he is, unless it maybe it was one of the assistants that uh, talked to other school who gave just one parting uh, parting note, but. Uh, uh, that's that's pretty funny. Hey, is it maybe it's an assistant from Vanderbilt? Who knows? Is it, uh, someone could make an argument Vanderbilt's a basketball school? Maybe I don't. I haven't actually thought into that, but uh, it's it, it, it is interesting because yeah, we haven't had any like big high major um, league changes these last few years, and and I think we can forget or just you know how big of how big that conference uh, affiliation really is when it comes to matters like that. So, I mean, hey, as a Canadian, it's like yeah, I can absolutely see why why weather would would play a factor like that. And I also just think like, again, as someone who um, doesn't live in the area, but sees every single SEC football game on my television because ESPN and the SEC network are, are massive. It's like, yeah, there's not that same allure with like Big 12 and like Longhorn network and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, the SEC, it just means more. I like it. Um, there were five schools in the bottom tier. And I just want to I want you to take a shot. You're not going to offend anybody because ESPN's already done that by running this article. Uh, <laughs> what job do you think they ranked as worst? Uh, Vanderbilt. No, Vanderbilt was ranked uh, tenth. So oh, the, the oh, oh no, yeah, tenth. Go ahead. Oh no, I just I, I should obviously put more thought yeah. into this then. <laughs> no, so so Vanderbilt was tenth. They had a few schools ahead of them, uh, or they were ahead of a few schools. Um. And last on the list was Miss State, uh, which has challenges due to location and a relative lack of high-profile players in the NBA, according to uh, Borzello, an assistant. This one didn't give themselves away. Uh, it's the worst city in the league, one head coach said. <laughs> the arena hasn't been updated in 25 years. They haven't produced any pros for the last couple of years. Ben is a really good coach, but they don't have anything close to the facilities that Ole Miss has, and they've been to one NCAA tournament in the last 12 seasons. That isn't good. Imagine if Ben left. They were getting guys like Quandary, Robert Woodard, Reggie Perry. At least Ben lands top 100 prospects somehow. They do a commendable job of getting good players, but their fans don't care and their arena stinks. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that was uh, that really. I mean, I've got to say, like, Mississippi State is the one arena where, like, I cannot picture it right now. Like, I cannot close my eyes and picture what the arena looks like. Now that you mentioned, I never thought about that. But uh, when you were like, oh, it's got the, you know, the worst uh, arena or whatever the article said, I'm like, I cannot even picture it in my head right now, which I, as I like think about the other schools, I absolutely can. So uh, yeah, if I thought about that one a little more and which is just weird, cause yeah, I really like Ben Howland for sure. Like uh, I think he's a great coach. So we'll see how long um, that kind of plays out there. But yeah, uh, thinking about the city it's in, I mean, I, how could I call out Vanderbilt where they're in such a beautiful city and have such a beautiful arena. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Mississippi State certainly makes a lot of sense for the reasons laid out. Yeah, no, uh, surprising probably everybody at ninth was uh, Georgia. And I did think it was kind of funny, and, and we can kind of close on on a sense of humor. Um, on a sense of humor note with the comments from the coaches on Georgia. So uh, it's an easier job than they make it look, one SEC head coach said. 
they really shouldn't have as many problems as they do winning there. Imagine if people cared. Um, another one. It's actually a tough job because most Georgia kids don't want to go to Georgia, at least in basketball. That's always been their problem. Florida gets who they want there. Bruce Pearl gets who he wants in Atlanta. Kentucky gets what they want in Atlanta. So Georgia is usually like choice four, or if Georgia Tech is good, five. It really has to be the right coach, and I'm stunned they continue to not hire people with ties to the state. Man, this is a this is a killer article. People are really going for it, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just knowing that the, the challenges that even like Georgia has to just see that Tom Crean has a way of talking about his players and to his players and, and stuff like that. It's like, Oh man, I would maybe approach things a little bit differently. Like perhaps the Ben Howland approach, um, you know, if I was in that situation, but you know, Ben Howland is still, or sorry, Tom Crean is still, you know, active on Twitter. It was like, Hey, you know, first round of the NBA playoffs. I like uh, when I, when I had Dwayne Wade, uh, you know, it's good to see him out there in the, I have such great memories of him in the first round. And then the second round came around and it was like, Oh, you know, it's tweeting about, Oh, it's, it's so good to like, I have such great memories of watching, in the NBA playoffs second round and seeing my friend Dwayne Wade. And then I just saw he tweeted what I think today, or maybe it was yesterday about, Oh, the NBA final, seeing the player I coached Dwayne Wade. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, he's, he's, he's leaning into the bit pretty good. If you haven't seen it on Twitter, you can go see, uh, see Tom Crean on, on Twitter talking about uh, Dwayne Wade. So, uh, you know, the, uh, with every year that's going to become a whole lot less relevant to players. So uh, we'll see where things go from there. Well, you know, I can tell you that, a guy like Katie Johnson just doesn't meet the standard of Georgia Ooh. basketball. Apparently is is good enough to play for one of, you know, say what you will about the ethical side of Bruce Pearl, but I think I'm not going to debate like whether he's a top 3 coach in the league. I really think he is. <laughs> That's my take on on that. So I just thought it was funny that Katie Johnson ended up uh at Auburn and that Georgia seems like a place where like their best players are transferring to other SEC schools. Like not only do they want to get away from Tom Crean, but they go somewhere where they want to beat Tom Crean's head in. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's just kind of amusing to me. Um, but you know, I don't know. Like if Florida players start transferring to FSU, so like they can like post funny memes of ham carrying Mike white around, like, then it'll really be time for Mike to go, right? Like, I know a lot of you are mocking me right now, but <laughs> we just spent 40 minutes make, making uh, some pretty sharp criticisms of, of White's offense. So let it go, people. Um, anyway, fun show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll be back in uh, a little while. Uh, and um, talk more SEC hopefully do another big listener question spot and just kind of start, you know, uh, letting you guys dictate where you want the show to go in the off season, but we appreciate you listening and um, we'll see you soon.